early on in our parenting, Sarah and I decided to do gospel-centered parenting. We wanted to take every opportunity, even if it seemed minuscule, to infuse our parenting with the gospel. So when we discipline our children, we say, you know why you're receiving this discipline? Because sin must be paid for. We are reinforcing, one, you are a sinner. Two, sin must be paid for. You can never get away with it. If they have committed a sin and then ask for forgiveness for that sin, we never respond, oh, it's okay. I'm sorry I said that to you, Mom. Oh, oh, it's okay, son. No. Sin is never okay. It's always a horrible offense. So instead of, instead of saying, it's okay, we say, I forgive you. Sin can be forgiven, but sin is never okay. God sent his son to die because of sin. Sin is a killer. There are times when they deserve a discipline, and then we will say, you're going to think we're old school here, but (laughs) we will say, you deserve a wooden spoon, but we're not going to give it to you. Do you know what that's called? That's called mercy. Withholding punishment that you do deserve. And that's what Jesus did for his children. He gives them mercy. We are seeking to shepherd the hearts of our children to Christ. Now, my wife does a wonderful job of this, much, much better than I. We are looking forward to shepherding our children's hearts through losing toys and losing friends, dealing with temptation, dealing with rejection, dealing with bullies. We're looking forward to shepherding their hearts through body changes and school changes and cultural changes. Ted Tripp, which his brother is Paul David Tripp, but the less popular brother, Ted Tripp, has a book entitled Shepherding a Child's Heart. And it's a real gift to the English-speaking church. Ted Tripp wrote on shepherding a child's heart. The Apostle Paul wrote on shepherding a church's heart. And you're going to see in the text that he's going to work the gospel into some serious heart issues. In fact, if, if you have a disagreement or a conflict with another Christian at this moment, and things are just not as they used to be, a wedge has divided you, you need this text. If you're joyless, robbed of joy by COVID or work environment or health problems or tragedy, you need your heart shepherded through this. If you're just... If you're just a a rough person, you possess a lack of gentleness. You're quick to snap, you're irritable, you're a contentious person, hypercritical. You need this text massaged into your heart. If you're full of anxiety, you struggle to walk into a place with a lot of people. You worry all the time about the future. Will I fulfill my job requirements? You panic easily. You have unhealthy phobias. You need gospel shepherding from this text. If you struggle with impure thoughts, telling someone off in your mind, or actually hitting someone in your thoughts, imagining being married to someone other than your spouse, playing out intimate acts outside of God's plan for you, if that's you, your heart must be shepherded By this text. And Paul begins heart shepherding in verse 1 by saying, notice, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. 
Paul is exhausting terms of endearment for this church. Brothers, we are spiritual family through Christ. My joy, seeing you live for Christ, not only makes me smile, but it makes me rejoice deep within my soul. My crown, this church was his crowning achievement as a church planter. My beloved, his favorite pet name for this church. Paul says, I love you and I long for you. He's 800 miles away and 10 years removed from them. He begins shepherding them by piling up terms of endearment. And, and here's what Paul knew and what I am learning. If you're going to shepherd a church's heart, they need to know that you love them. And church, I want you to know that the pastors of this church take seriously the responsibility to shepherd you. As Paul tells this church he loves them, we don't want to miss out on the opportunity to say to you, we love you. We use these same terms of endearment for you. We aren't playing church. We aren't using this place as a stepping stone to get to another church. We are pouring ourselves out to shepherd you. We will fight for you. We will run for you. We will cry with you. We will go to the trenches with you. We will be by your deathbed with you. And if necessary, we will die for you. Now that you know that, you can receive this exposition from that heart. Just like the church at Philippi is receiving this exposition from Paul's heart. No hidden agendas. Only a shepherd's heart. Five movements in the text. The first one's rather long. The other four, let's just be honest, they're just as long. Okay. Movement number one, your heart must be shepherded through conflicts. Notice verse two. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, if anyone was nodding off in the Philippian church service while this letter was being read, they were awake now. <laughs> Can you imagine being immortalized for the next 2,000 years in every culture as being the two ladies in the congregation of Philippi that got called out publicly by Paul? These are two ladies in the church who apparently had a disagreement. And the church began, to, began taking sides. One group was siding with Yodia. The other group was siding with Syntyche. The name calling had begun. It was beginning to look like a, a presidential debate. <laughs> Words were flying. Heat was rising. Disharmony was spreading. No one was willing to wave the white flag. And ladies, please put the hair dryers down. Never. <clears throat> Women played a prominent role in the founding of the first churches in Europe, and especially in the beginning of the church at Philippi. These women were part of the core group in Philippi, converted by the riverside with Lydia. They were charter members. But now they are each attempting to control the narrative, to get ahead of the story. There was a tiny crack in their friendship, and they turned it into the Grand Canyon. And the enemy of the church was licking his chops. When conflicts arise in the church, Satan doesn't take sides. He provides ammunition. This week I watched on YouTube two gazelles fighting one another. And they were going at it for quite a while. Sometimes their horns would even get stuck together. Now little did they know that there was a lion in the distance watching it all take place. And suddenly the lion begins running full speed, his large mane flowing in the wind. The two gazelles should have seen him coming. 
He was hundreds of yards out. The landscape was flat and barren. The lion couldn't do a sneak attack. The only way he could go unnoticed was if they kept fighting. 500 yards, 400 yards, still fighting. 300 yards, 200 yards, they still didn't notice him. 100 yards, 50 yards, he's still unnoticed. 10 yards, 9, 8, 7, 6, you want to join me? 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, death. The lion pounced on the easy targets. When you are fighting in the barracks with fellow brothers and sisters, the enemy sees you as easy targets. The disagreement in our text, I want to make this clear, was not doctrinal. If it was doctrinal, Paul would have addressed it. He'll throw down over doctrine. But this was personal. It was preferential. Notice Paul does not waste his time taking sides. The average evangelical church isn't going to divide over the deity of Christ. Or the trinity. Or the literal resurrection of Christ. But what will divide the church in America are far less significant issues. Like changing of service times. Or changing of some sacred cow. Not a gospel issue. Step back for a minute. Yodia was for Paul and for Jesus. Syntyche was for Paul and for Jesus. They were just against one another. They didn't have to be of the same opinion to agree. They could differ on how to educate their children or to wear a mask or not or music styles or a litany of other things. Paul does not say agree on the situation. He says to agree in the Lord. The goal is not a uniformity of preferences, but a uniformity of mind. In fact, the words here, agree in the Lord, are actually, in the Greek, be of the same mind. You realize that relationships require hard work. And if you don't work at them, they will sour. These ladies in the church, they were Christians. Verse 3, their names are not only in the book of God, the Bible, but are also in the book of life. You could find them on the imperishable page. You're looking here in the text at two women who were veteran saints. These are not beginner Christians. I just heard while we were singing, someone in our church recently trusted Christ as their Savior. That's, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. These are not, but these, like, these aren't beginner Christians. These are senior saints. This is not batty Betty and crazy crystal. These ladies were faithful who in verse 3 labored side by side with Paul. And, and Paul uses a gladiatorial term, better rendered, fault side by side with me. Past history doesn't guarantee present harmony. Well, we've known each other for years. It doesn't matter. Time and stress put ten, puts tension on relationships. And you must be vigilant not to allow bitterness to creep in. If we, have, if we haven't learned this over the last six months, I don't know that we're ever going to learn it. Mature Christians don't always disagree agreeably. 
There is a, a reason a poem was written that goes like this. To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be wonder and glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. You, you may not agree on what was said or what was meant, but you can agree in the Lord that Jesus is Lord, that his claims are true, that both of you are sinners in need of this Christ. When non-Christians hear the church fight over preferences, they see it as no different than a local country club. I have a pastor friend of mine who was texting me all during the singing. I'm like, are you supposed to be preaching? Stop taking my phone's blowing up. Anyhow, that's my problem, not yours. I have a pastor friend who was saved out of alcoholism. And he says, when I first stepped into the church, I was surprised because people in the bar got along better than people in the church. In every congregation, in every congregation, you say like, we don't, we don't have that here. Don't think it can't happen here. And actually, don't even think it's not here. Just because our form of, of, of government is elder-led and not congregationalism, don't think it can't happen. In every congregation, there will be someone, a Yodia or a Syntyche, who wants to argue about petty things. And if left unchecked, disagreements between a few can harm many. Disputes not addressed break the unity and destroy the testimony of the church. And Paul sees disunity as a horrible, disastrous thing. It's contrary to the mind of Christ. It is a denial of the nature of the church. It is a flaw in the church's armor against the world. Further, disunity keeps us from exercising forward energy in the mission. Forward energy. Petty differences create sideways energy. It, you, you know this in your business. It, it occupies far too much time. Time that individuals could be using to spread the gospel. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, you cannot say, I love God, but I hate the church. I don't care what your experiences have been. You cannot say, I love God, but hate the church. You cannot love the Father and hate his children. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and we are his body. Believers cannot love the head and hate the body. Could you imagine a husband saying to his wife, I love your face, but your body, mm, you want to get slapped? <laughs> You're dangerous. A, a golfer would never tell his buddy on the golf course, I love you, but I hate your wife. You can't love the head and hate the body. Some Christians try to kiss the head and kick the body. Kiss the father and kick the sons and daughters. God has commanded us to love the brethren, to love one another even if they arrive at different opinions than the one that we hold. Have you ever considered that there will be people in heaven that you did not like on earth? You will sit at the table with someone in heaven that you would never sit at the table with on earth. You will drink from the same cup in heaven, but would never have done it on earth. People will not see eye to eye on every issue. But there can be diversity without disunity. And notice Paul addresses each lady in the same manner to show no favoritism to either. I entreat Yodia, I entreat Syntyche. And I know what I'm about to tell you is nuanced, but, but I think it's rich. 
The word entreat here mentioned twice is the Greek word paraclete. It's the same word Jesus used when he said, when he was leaving with his hands up and slowly ascending into heaven. And he said, I will send you a comforter. I will send you a paraclete. There doesn't exist a divide or disagreement that the Holy Spirit can't repair. You said the wound is deep, Kyle. There doesn't exist a divide or disagreement that the Holy Spirit can't repair. Verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, keyword, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, there are three groups of people in this verse. You've got your true companion, you've got the women, and then you've got Clement and the rest of the fellow workers. And there's something that runs through the life of every person in this passage, like a like a, a golden thread throughout the text that binds him or her together. How can all of these people be so different yet be bound together? How can a concert pianist be bound to a farmer? How can a Yankee be bound to a southerner? Because pianos don't unite us. And John Deere doesn't unite us. The gospel is the gold cord that binds us together. The gospel does not divide the church, it unites the church. And there are literally dozens of different viewpoints on who this true companion was. He's unnamed. Some believe it was Timothy. He was certainly Paul's true companion. Uh, Stephen Davey says it was Epaphroditus. Others suggest it was Silas, Paul's traveling companion and fellow evangelist. Some say it was the good doctor Luke. A few commentators believe the term fellow companion was a metaphor for the entire Philippian church. All of you get in on this. Uh, since the church had several pastors and elders in the assembly, it could have just been one of the elders. One even suggested that this term refers to Paul's wife, since the term companion can refer to a wife. Some of you believe that it refers to John Calvin. I think you've taken your infatuation with the Reformation a little too far. I can rule out Calvin and Paul's wife for sure. It really doesn't matter who it is. It was a faithful brother in the church, and he is called to be the mediator in this situation. Now picture this scene. The whole church is gathered together listening to this letter from Paul being read publicly. They're sitting with anticipation, three chapters completed. Yodia is sitting on the left side of the auditorium. Syntyche is sitting on the right side of the auditorium. They sit on opposite sides so they don't have to run into each other during the handshaking time. Imagine everyone's head turning when they hear read, I entreat Yodia. Everyone looks at her. I entreat Syntyche. Everyone looks at her. And then suddenly, true companion. And then everyone's eyes go to this man. They knew exactly who it was. And then they hear, straighten out this mess. Now, if I would have been the true companion, I'd have been like, you, what? You want me to get into the middle of these two arguing women? No, I don't think so. Mm -mm. I don't think I heard you clearly. Someone was coughing. Did you, did you say my name? Or was it someone else's name? No, I, I joke, but this man didn't, didn't take that responsibility grudgingly, but happily. He had the ministry of reconciliation, bringing two parties together. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Innumerable are the people that can cause division, but few are the people who can bring unity. He didn't sweep the problem under the rug, ignore it, and act like it's not a thing. That's 
peace faking. That's easy. That's what a lot of people want to do. Peace faking. I ask you to help these women. Now, the meaning of the verb to help carries a strong sense of physical action. To lay hold of, to grasp. The verb is the same verb used to describe the scene in the garden where the soldiers came and arrested Jesus in Matthew 6. It's the same verb used to refer to the disciples catching all those fish in Luke chapter 5 verse 9. Now, it's not saying take hold of the women. No, it's saying sternly take hold of the dispute. Conflicts are often resolved by the assistance of cooler heads. I call them gospel heads. When conflicts arise, the church body isn't to take sides, but to untangle the issue. Now, I've got two questions for you before moving on to that second movement. Question number one. Will you ask for help when you have a conflict in the church? You say, it's, it's, it's none of anyone's business. It's the church's business. Because you're part of the body and your sin affects the whole body. And how fortunate we are to have in this church many wise counselors and mediators. And sometimes we need help sorting things out. You don't have to figure it all out on your own. By the way, your mama isn't a good mediator. Don't invite your family into your fight. They're emotionally attached and they always see your side. Second question. Are you prepared to be a true companion and give help? Not everyone can be a Ted Tripp and write a book on it. But everyone can counsel with scripture and prayer. Don't sit on the sidelines just watching the conflict grow and take on more energy and more heat. Jump in, help out. The covenant you sign for church membership is an invitation to pull one another together. I've often said at Faith Family Church that we encourage awkward conversations to take place. If you're going to have real relationships with others, you will have conflicts. Movement number two. Your heart must be shepherded to learn to rejoice. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. This book is filled with joy. Some form, some form of the word joy is found 16 times in the book. Philippians has been called the epistle of joy. And there's nothing wrong with the title, but before it's a book about joy, it's a book about Jesus. And Paul is not speaking of happiness, he's speaking of joy. The difference between happiness and joy could be described as the difference between the water on the surface of the ocean and the water in the deep depths of the ocean. The water on the surface of the ocean can be calm one minute and then quickly whip into a storm the next minute. The circumstances of the weather can change the condition of the water. If a storm comes upon the ocean, the waters at the surface will quickly become turbulent. But the waters in the deep depths of the ocean will not be disturbed. Although everything is turbulent on the surface, deep down there's calmness and the water is still. And the same is true of joy and happiness. Happiness is the water at the surface. Any circumstance or storm of life can quickly come and take away the calmness. But the water down deep is the joy of a Christian. Storms may come on the surface, but it does not take away the stillness, the calm, the deep abiding joy that a Christian has from knowing Jesus. And notice that there aren't any loopholes in this command. The verse does not say rejoice in the Lord sometimes. 
It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul is serious. Did you hear him repeat himself? And again, I say, rejoice. This is not a suggestion from Paul, but a command from God. And this command is not contingent on circumstances. This is not a health, wealth, joy. This is a joy that supersedes even the struggles and difficulties of life. Do you have Christ as Lord? (laughs) Then smile. Reflect the joy of the Lord on your countenance. A joyless Christian is an oxymoron. It's like, Kyle, I've, mm, I've accepted puddle glum into my heart. It looks like it. It looks like it. The gospel doesn't make you Eeyore. There is a natural complaining nature. But it is the fallen nature. Not the redeemed nature. Remember that Paul wasn't writing as he lounged in a Roman bath or sipped espresso in Cafe Romana. We must never forget that Paul delivered his defiant command to rejoice while in prison. While watching his competitors and enemies make advances among his churches in Rome and Philippi. No matter where you're located... Joy is the flag that flies on the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. Movement number three. Your heart must be shepherded to yield for the sake of unity in the church. Notice verse five. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The word reasonableness can be translated in lots of legitimate ways. Uh, Part of the challenge over the past 500 years of English translations have been attempting to translate an absolutely loaded Greek word. And it's difficult. Uh, For this word here, in 1380, John Wycliffe translated the word patience. William Tyndale printed the first English New Testament in 1525 and he translated it, let your softness be known. The Geneva Bible in 1560, which was the first Bible to number verses and chapters. In fact, William Shakespeare would quote from this Bible hundreds of times in his plays. It's it's translated the word, the patient mind. In 1582, Reims translated it, modesty. In 1611, the King James Bible used the word, moderation. Now, more recent translations have used the word, gentleness, which is my second choice. I think the best translation would put it like this. Let your willingness to yield for the sake of unity be known unto all men. And some of you aren't going to like this. Like, Kyle, I don't yield. Kyle, I'm not a jellyfish. I have a backbone. That's what makes me, me. Besides, Kyle, I see see verse 1 as a contradiction to this verse. Paul says in verse 1 to stand firm, that is to stick with it, don't give up any ground, do not yield. But here he's saying yield. We are never to yield, give up doctrine, give up ground on doctrine or theology or gospel issues. We never give up ground there. But on preferences and wants, you should yield for the sake of unity. And when you do that, that yielding is actually standing for the Lord. Don't try to push your opinion or agenda Elbowing your way through the church to get your way, that's not gentle. Doctrine, stand. Preferences, yield. Now I'm going to ask you a question, and I don't, I don't want you to answer it out loud. But I'd like for you to answer it internally. Here's the question. 
Do you see yourself as a threat to the unity of this church? Do you see yourself as a threat to the unity of this church? See, that's the problem. You should see yourself as a major threat. Friend, you don't have to win an argument to prove your worth. We, see, their little argument, these ladies' arguments, seem silly. Because we're 2,000 years removed. And when we are two minutes removed, it, it, it seems serious, not silly. But you don't have to win an argument to prove your worth. You don't have to win to be validated. Both of these ladies' names are written in the book of life. Is that not validation enough? How does winning an argument give you more validation than being written in the book of life? So consistently, and some of you will be in this church for a year or two years, and, and Uncle Sam will move you somewhere else. Some of you will be here forever. God bless you. Never leave, okay? Um, but those of you that are going to be here for just a short time and you're going to go somewhere else, I want you to remember this, not only for this church, but for every church you attend. You always have to ask yourself the question, am I at odds with anyone in the church? Is winning that argument more important to me than the unity of the church? Yielding requires grace-filled humility. Movement number four. Your heart must be shepherded to handle your anxiety. Your heart must be shepherded to handle your anxiety. Notice verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Are you given to worry? The Philippians were quick to worry. And Paul says, stop it. It is sin. You cannot be prayerful and worryful at the same time. Faith ends where anxiety begins. It does not say, be anxious about large things, financial things, family things. No. The writer of Proverbs says in chapter 12, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. Anxiety is like carrying a huge backpack for miles. And this form of worry is pagan. It could be called functional atheism. Because you're living as though God doesn't exist. And he's not the all-sovereign ruler over all. And people get frustrated with me all the time because I say worry is pagan. But I didn't say it. God said it in Matthew 6. There's a, there's a guy who's um, leading, leading a lot of things on our new building, building project. And um, just a u- unique fella. He came from, from nothing, and he's really done well for himself. And we were out here meeting one Saturday night looking at something that wasn't installed correctly, and, and we were going to have to redo it. When I say we, I mean he was going to have to redo it. And um, I had to preach the next morning. And I didn't want to be dealing with problems at night before I preached. And it was stressing me out, and I was worried about it. And I've been witnessing to this guy trying to win him to Christ. And I don't think I'll ever forget him looking at me in the eye with concern and saying, Kyle, you're stressed. You looked worried. Then the Holy Spirit convicted me. What a terrible testimony. 
that I believe in a sovereign God who controls all things and spoke all things into existence, and I'm stressed about something that is so temporal. It makes God look bad when we're worrying all the time. It reflects badly on our heavenly Father. If my son goes to school and he's just consistently worried... Am I going to have food when I get home? Am I going to have food when I get home? Am I going to have food when I get home? There's something that reflects badly on me. Now, we all know this, right? We already know that worry is useless and destructive. It even effectively sides us with the enemy who tells us that God isn't really interested in us and God isn't worth trusting, and so you're on your own and you better start worrying. What does anxiety do to you? Anxiety is a joy killer. Anxiety will make you self-absorbed. When you're consumed with your own worries, you will be less likely to serve others wholeheartedly. Worry distracts us and keeps us from mission. It robs you of peace, for which Paul says can fill the hearts of praying believers. Now that's what anxiety does to your spirit, but, but how does anxiety affect your body? Unusual mood swings. Irritability, sweating, rapid heartbeat, chest pain, exhaustion, nervous twitching, decreased concentration, decreased memory, nausea, shortness of breath, weight gain, weight loss, panic, indecisiveness, canker sores, insomnia, high blood pressure, eating comfort foods, reckless driving, and many more. What should you do about anxiety? What is the answer? Acupuncture, whiskey, exercise, aromatherapy, yoga, medicines, deep breathing. Well, I have one for you. How about prayer? The first and most basic remedy for anxiety is prayer. D.A. Carson says, I have yet to meet a chronic warrior who enjoys an excellent prayer life. Here's the antidote to anxiety. This is basic Christianity, but how are you doing in the discipline of unhindered, uninterrupted, unhurried time with God? I read this week where Martin Luther was talking about his favorite preacher, Kyle Sharon. Maybe you've heard of him, but no, his, his favorite preacher, it was a bird. He said, and I quote, I have one preacher that I love better than any other. It is my tame Robin who preaches to me daily. I put his crumbs upon the windowsill, especially at night. And he hops onto the sill when he wants his supply and takes as much as he desires to satisfy his need. From there, he always hops to the little tree close by and lifts up his voice to God and sings his carol of praise and gratitude. Then tucks his little head under his wing and goes fast to sleep. To leave tomorrow to look after itself. He is the best preacher I've heard on earth. End quote. Let the birds preach a better sermon to you. God feeds the birds which are less valuable than you. I know you animal lovers don't like that, but the Bible says that. Birds less valuable than you. God clothes the lilies, which are temporary. He will provide for you who are eternal. The psalmist says in 127.2 that you need to trust God 
and go to sleep at night. He says, it is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For God gives his beloved sleep. Anxiety and worry are so often come when we're focused on tomorrow. God never worries. God is in control. God loves his people and tells them, go to sleep at night. And may God grant us the grace to enjoy the peace that comes from casting all of our cares upon him. It may be helpful to consider how the birds view us. Said the robin to the sparrow. I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin. Friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. That's what we're saying when we worry. Jesus forbids worry three times. When you start to panic, begin to pray. When you're panicky, don't go to a bottle of wine. Don't go to a bucket of ice cream. Don't go to binge on Call of Duty. Open a Bible and then speak to God about what you are reading. Fight anxiety and fear with God's promises. And when you do that, what happens? Verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There is a difference between peace of God and peace with God. Peace with God, Romans 5. Every believer, truly redeemed believer, has peace with God. But not every believer has peace of God. And Paul says the peace of God will keep your hearts and minds. The word keep has the thought of guarding. It's actually, actually a, a military term. I never realized how many military terms there were in the Bible until I pastored here so close to a, a post. But Paul looks over at the sh- soldier chained to his wrist and feet and says, Peace will guard your heart like this soldier is guarding me. Now, how does one receive peace? How do you receive the peace of God? Well, connect in your Bible, verse 7, peace of God. To its source in verse 9, God of peace. The peace of God in verse 7 comes from the God of peace in verse 9. And the God of peace gives you a peace that surpasses all understanding. I've seen peace that is explainable, and then I've seen peace that is unexplainable. It it would be understandable if, if it brought money and possessions and fame. It would be understandable if this peace comes to those. Um, it, it would not. It's, it's beyond understanding when it comes to those who are hurting. It's unexplainable when it comes to those sitting in a church pew with a terminal cancer diagnosis. It's unexplainable when it comes to a man or a woman whose spouse just stepped out on them. Yet filled with peace. We don't have to wait for the Prince of Peace to come in the clouds before we can have the peace of God. We have here perfect peace for anxious souls. And I know in our culture, peace is really a marshmallow word. Tastes good, but not a lot of substance. So you got to understand there's a stupid peace and there's a smart peace. The stupid peace. Uh, Ho, 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 to the bottle I go to heal my heart and drown my woe. I'm not going to think about it. That's a stupid peace. But then there's a smart peace. 
You don't avoid anything. You just think big picture. Everything's going to be okay because Jesus died for my sins. Jesus lost all of his peace so that you could have this peace. And if you're, if you're a non-Christian, non-Christian, you, you've heard me talk for the last 10 minutes to tell Christians not to worry. If you're a non-Christian, you do have something to worry about. If you die without Christ, you're going to hell. You need to repent of your sin and trust this Jesus Christ as Lord. Have access not only to peace with God, but peace of God. The last truth is this. Your heart must be shepherded to control your mind. Notice verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul gives you here spiritual food for thought. Paul said, think on these things. Paul's not promoting positive thinking or probability thinking. Positive thinking puts you in a utopia that does not exist. It ignores reality. It ignores what's really taking place. Paul is not asking these believers to be optimistic. This is a bankrupt substitute for the peace of God. This is not positive thinking. Nor is this probability thinking. Probability thinking, that's human effort to work your way out of the problem. That's where I'm geared towards, probability thinking. Is there a way Christians are to think? Yes. Now our culture is saying, don't you tell me what to think. Jesus said, I came to tell you what to think. First, think on what is true. That is doctrine. How often do you think on doctrine? I'm not talking about Sundays, but on Mondays. How often do you think on doctrine? Notice that Paul's meditation, which is what he's doing here, is meditating. Paul's meditation is not about emptying the mind. It's about filling up the mind with God's word. In fact, the very practice of emptying the mind in meditation, I think it's a dangerous practice. The point of meditation, you understand, is so that you can hear God's word and meditate on it. Forms of meditation and even prayer that tell us we need to empty our minds is so foreign to the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible it says, empty your minds. Wait and listen for God to speak to you. No, that's assuming that God has not already spoken to us. And he has spoken to us in a book. And you're not to empty your mind, you are to fill your mind with this book. So first, think on whatever is true. Secondly, think on whatever is honorable. These are things that are decent and dignified. One linguist clarifies that this is the kind of noble mind. This is, this is the kind of thing that the noble mind simply dreads anything that is superficial or flippant. Are you giving honorable things thought? Thirdly and fourthly, whatever is just and pure. Your culture is no friend to purity. They fight like crazy to pollute your minds with songs, TV sitcoms, and movies. And I just, this, this other generation, this younger generation of Christians that's always criticizing the older generation of Christians, like when I said earlier, um, two ladies on different sides of the church, because they did shake hands, they don't want to shake. See, churches had this thing back in the day, okay, where they would shake hands, it's called a greeting time. 
See, none of you got that, right? All right. So one of the one of the um, one of the dangers that I think the younger Christians have is they're always looking back at the older Christians and thinking like, oh yeah, they refrained from this. they were so legalistic, refrained from this and refrained from this and refrained from this. They can't handle it like I can. Maybe you shouldn't be handling it. The battle begins in our minds. David did not begin with sleeping with the woman next door. He began with lusting after her in his mind, thinking. And don't miss this. Sin always starts in the mind. Fifthly, whatever is lovely. Now, lovely includes not only what is morally lovely, but what is aesthetically lovely. What is beautiful in creation and human lives. From a sunset to a symphony. From fields of corn to a, to a deer being born. From honeybees to a sea breeze. Sixthly, whatever is commendable. Are you thinking about commendable things? You know, you, you could be a Christian woman. And you might walk into a room. And within a nanosecond, you've sized up all other women in the room. You've sized them up as to what they're wearing. You've sized them up as to their physical appearance. You've compared yourself. Am I prettier than she is? Am I better dressed than she is? Am I smarter than she is? Am I more popular than she is? Certainly, the world is commending you for that part of thinking. But it's not commendable. It's imperative that we invite Christ to take over our minds. And this is how you worship God, with your mind. Remember, Jesus said you should worship God with your heart, soul, and mind. We've got a whole generation that's failed to worship God with their minds. The little four-year-old prays, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my brain to keep. When you begin to think or spiral downward into loneliness, you have a choice to stop and shift your mind to think on these six things. Last verse 7. Uh, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I, the only thing I want to say about verse 9 is this. Paul is no armchair theologian. He lives out these six whatevers. What you've seen in me, repeat. Discipleship is more than a transfer of information. It's a transfer of life. And that's what you see. Transferring life. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.